And in the 60s, in the birth of contemporary Christian music, we just pushed the organ away. But I rediscovered it about six years ago in Germany. And sometimes when the pipe organ plays, it has as many as 50,000 pipes. Did you know that? Sometimes they hit that chord or that note and it resonates within me. And I say, Lord, that's how I feel. And the Psalms have many, many, many different notes. They're Psalms of praise. They're journey Psalms like we studied last week. They're Psalms of contrition, invection against your enemies. They're confessional Psalms. And it's been said there's a Psalm for every sigh. And so I began to study them, and much to my amazement, I found out that Jesus quoted from the book of Psalms more than any other book in the Old Testament. And also, much to my amazement, I found that classical musicians over the centuries used the text of the Bible we call the Psalms to inspire more classical music than any other piece of literature in or out of the Bible. And I found that I knew many psalms. I had favorite psalms. It's just that I didn't know what they meant. And none is more true than Psalm 8 that we're studying this week. And I'd like us to take a look at that now, if you'll keep your Bible open there to Psalm 8. Let us pray. Lord, we are a noisy people. And we come before you asking that you cause us to be still and grow silent. That you would speak to us, Lord, from this poem, the completest utterances, and show us the light for our own path. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, since our text today is a poem, I think it's fitting that we begin our study with a poem. Edward, Edwin Arlington Robinson is an American poet of about a hundred years ago who wrote little but wrote well. And his poem, Richard Corey, is about a town admiring its richest citizen. And it has this in it. Whenever Richard Corey went downtown, we people on the pavement looked at him. He was a gentleman from soul to crown, clean-favored and imperially slim. And he was always quietly arrayed. And he was always human when he talked. But still, he fluttered pulses when he said, good morning, and he glittered when he walked. And he was rich, yes, richer than a king, and admirably schooled in every grace. In fine, in fine, we thought that he was everything to make us wish that we were in his place. So on we worked and waited for the light and went without the meat and cursed our bread. And Richard Corey, one calm summer night, went home and put a bullet through his head. Kind of a tragic ending. Suicide is the most extreme form of self-criticism. There were over 30,000 known suicides last year. In fact, most psychiatrists believe that that number was really doubled. 60,000 Americans took their life because half of them disguised themselves as victims of a car wreck or a house fire or a drowning or whatever. Suicide, if you keep records of such things, in the past 50 years has jumped 264% in United States culture. Well, what Psalm 8 got to do with this? It begins well enough with praise. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. But by verse 4, he's asking questions. What am I? What is man? 
What does it mean to be me? Am I good or bad? Is my life worthy to be lived? Or should it be ended? The key here is that it's impossible to develop yours and your children's healthy self-worth unless you begin with your image of God. But how does one get this? I've noticed as a minister over the years when you counsel with people and you say, tell me about yourself, what will a woman almost naturally do? She'll tell you about her husband and her children. Not all of them, but generally that's what you'd get. If you ask a man, tell me about yourself, he'll talk about his car, his favorite sports team, his job, some money he hopes to make to provide for his family. If you speak to a single person, tell me about yourself, generally they'll tell you about uh, a date that they have that they're excited about or some project at work that they're pouring themselves into. And if you ask a teenager to tell you about himself, they'll talk about sports or some team they're a part of. People identify with other people, with things, with habits, with honors. But what happens to your self-worth when these things fail? How do you look at yourself? Are you the sum of your beauty, your health, your youth? Are you the sum of your investments, your money, or your one lost record on the sports field? or the honors and accolades that have come your way. Many people live for such. And the problem with building your self-esteem on worldly things is that the world passes away in the lust thereof. And when you live for things that don't last, your health, your beauty, your looks, money, accolades, usually your self-esteem fails in the end. Notice how the psalmist built his healthy self-esteem. Three ways. First of all, he's impressed in the psalm with who God is. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. Good self-esteem begins not with me, but with who the Lord is. Notice in Psalm 8 that God is mentioned 19 times. And man is mentioned only nine, ten, maybe eleven times. God is the center of the universe, not me. For every one word about me, two words about God. Now, the world is different today, isn't it? I grew up in the 1950s in a world where God was big and people were small. And here, 50 years later, it's the exact opposite. God is irrelevant. And people loom large and are huge. They think their flesh belongs to themselves and they can carve out of themselves what they wish. Look at verses 1 through 2. It begins with praise, ascribing worth to God. It's easy to become so self-absorbed that we miss God. We're either so impressed with our cleverness or so impressed with our problems that we miss the Lord himself. Not the psalmist, right from the start. Oh Lord, Our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. Notice in the text, the first Lord is the word Yahweh. Oh, Yahweh, the unspeakable one, the summation of the Godhead. The second Lord is the word Adonai. It means Lord or Master, the one who is in charge. Oh, Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. Majestic is large and imposing. We often would translate it today with that word that's overused. What is it? Awesome, man or dude. And notice the personal pronoun. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. God is not aloof. He's a personal God. And it says, your name is majestic in all the earth. 
Or as my sons would say, he's not famous in two states, but world over. When my boys were 14, 15, 16, uh, we went on a, a preaching mission up into Vermont and to uh, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania for a Bible conference I taught. And we decided to do some camping on the way. The first night we camped at Big Meadows on the Skyland Drive in Virginia. And we'd gone down to the presidential camp uh, there on the Rapidan River and biked back up the hill. And we were in the canteen getting a cold drink. And these pretty co-eds came in and they kept looking our way and smiling. So I patted my ball spot down so it wouldn't show as much and I kind of sucked it in. And I thought, well, maybe they're not looking at me. It's my sons. It's got to start somewhere. And you would be amazed when they walked over and they said, excuse me, aren't you Stephen Crotz? And I said, yes, I am. They said, well, we, we go to William & Mary College, and you came and spoke there, and we were just discussing whether that was you. And my sons were impressed. We were up in Bar Harbor, Maine, in a gift shop. And this young couple came over and said, excuse me, aren't you Stephen Crotz? I said, yes, I am. They said, well, you taught our conference on Ephesians, and... Uh, especially the part about marriage endeared us. We fell in love with that conference, and we were married. We were up here on our honeymoon, and we thought that was you. We just wanted to speak, and my sons were impressed. Well, on the way home, we were at the Gettysburg Conference, and I was preaching, and the attendance wasn't very good. Instead of a full house, you had half a house, and that night we were camping in our tent and trying to go to sleep, and my son Brian was saying, there should have been more people there. Should have been more people there. And he just went on and on. Don't they know who our father is? The place should have been full. And finally David said, Brian, shut up and go to sleep. It's not easy being famous. (laughs) So famous that it's half filled. And so my boys often tease me. Hey, Dad, you're famous in two counties or two states. But notice what the text says. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in the whole earth. His majesty fills the entirety of the glory of the globe. Then it goes on to talk about the glory, the weightiness and radiance of God. And then it talks about the power of God. He can still the enemy and the avenger. Let that help you sleep at night when you think of nuclear proliferation. That God is in control of the nations of the world. That he has a plan. That he can still the enemy and the avenger. And it talks about his creative prowess. You've established the moon and the stars. Last spring, I planted a pot of pink geraniums on my day off. And it greeted you when you came to my doorstep. And I thought it really looked good. And the next day, I went with my horse riding friend, Rhett, for a ride in the Blue Ridge Mountains. And we got up on top of Sassafras Mountain on these Tennessee walkers. And wave after wave of Blue Ridge Mountain just went as far as you could see towards the Georgia border. And the mountain laurel was at full bloom. And as far as you could see, just waves of majestic flowers blooming everywhere. And I suddenly felt very small to have planted this tiny little pot of flowers and realized the Lord planted the hills as far as you could see. And beyond that, around the world. Thus we have the praise of the Lord in a few verses. This doesn't capture all of the majesty of the Lord. Trying to do that is rather like capturing the Atlantic Ocean in a thimble. You have it. 
but you have only the tiniest of proportions. The point, I think, of the psalm here is this. We don't think highly enough of God. In our struggle for identity in life and self-worth, we become so absorbed with ourselves that we miss the power and majesty of deity. So the psalm begins with the poet becoming impressed with who God is. It continues with the second part. The poet is impressed with God's creation. Look at verse 3. When I think of the moon and the stars, what is man that thou art mindful of him? He contemplates the moon and the stars, and he continues to mention the fish, the beasts, the birds of the air, babies, the creation in general. Is the universe a fluke, he's asking, or is there a genius back of it? Evolution today, secular humanism, is rampant across our universities and our secondary schools, and it basically says this, you are the result of a long, detailed succession of battles for survival. And you are the fittest to emerge from that conflict in this dog-eat-dog world. And you have worth in your ability to dominate. There you have the public schools. Athleticism says you're worth your one-loss record. Materialism says you're worth what you possess. In each of these distinctives. You're worth what you can do, how you can survive, achieve, or how you look. But the Bible is intensely different. You have intrinsic worth. You have value because you exist, because God created you and wanted you to exist. You were loved by Him. You're the only one of your kind. Now think this through with Psalm 8. When I consider the moon, let's just erase the word moon. And let's put the word housefly in that. When I was working on this sermon, I was looking at the moon, trying to figure out what he was saying. And I suddenly became diverted by a housefly buzzing me. And I swatted at the housefly, and he went and landed on the ceiling, upside down. And I watched him crawl across the ceiling. And I thought, well, let's go from the largeness of the moon to the tiny insect, the housefly. And I began to muse over that housefly. How does he do that? Can you walk on the ceiling? We can't do that. How does a fly defy gravity? And so I began to research a fly. You wonder what we pastors do in our study? (laughs) Somebody calls and says, you're busy? Uh, Yes, I actually was. I was studying the Bible. What are you studying? Houseflies and how they can walk on the ceiling. I found out that houseflies have six legs. And each leg has a dozen tiny little hairs. And each tiny little hair is hollow. And at the top of each tiny little hair is a small sack of glue. And when a fly lights on something, the slightest pressure is exuded in his legs... And a little bit of glue goes down that hollow hair and provides a tackiness on the bottom of his foot, on that hair. And so he walks on the ceiling with that slight tackiness. It's not too tacky that he's stuck fast there, but just tacky enough that he can pull each foot up and put it down and remain glued to the ceiling. Look at the maneuverability of a fly. You know, I'm a college graduate and I can't swat one. If you could put that tiny fly's computer brain into an F-14, think of the maneuverability of that plane. Now, planes need flight fuel. 
What does a fly use? Any kind of waste will do. And if you swat one of them and kill it, the Lord isn't mad. He has billions of them. And there are creatures like this all over the earth. And look at the creatures that are mentioned in the text. The moon, the stars, a baby. Now that's a miracle in itself. Angels, birds, cattle, fish. He doesn't even get down to the common housefly. But you can see him overwhelmed with the genius of creation. And on and on he goes. So, in this poem, he begins by saying, I'm impressed with who God is. And I'm impressed with God's creation. And now in the final part of this poem, this psalm, he becomes impressed with who he is. What is man, he writes, that thou art mindful of him. In the fourth century, St. Augustine put it well. He said, men travel abroad to gawk at mountains and cities, to marvel at the great oceans and valleys, and all the while they miss the wonder of themselves. And that's what this psalm is about, the wonder of God and the wonder of creation and the wondering about one's own self. Now notice there are two directions that the poet tilts in. The first is the inferiority complex. He whines, what is man that thou art mindful of him? You hear this on Monday morning in your office space. I don't matter. Nobody cares if I exist. I could have come in today or not come in today. It wouldn't matter. The boss doesn't care. I haven't gotten a promotion or a raise in three years. I'm not lovable. My date this weekend rejected me. The boss is probably going to fire me. That's proof that I'm a bad person. And you find this inferiority complex all over the place. Listen to the poetry of Emily Dickinson. I'm nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody too? Then there's a pair of us. Shh, don't tell. They banish us, you know. How dreary to be somebody. How public like a frog. To tell your name the live long day to an admiring bog. Or listen to Charlie Brown in the Peanuts comic strip. He feels inadequate all the time. And he explains his low self-esteem to Linus. You see, Linus, it all goes way back to the beginnings. The moment I was born and set foot on the stage of life, the world took one look at me and said, he's not right for the part. A lot of people go through life like that. What is man that thou art mindful of him? A lot of people struggle with that. But notice the second tilt from the inferiority complex to the other extreme, a superiority complex. Look at verse 5. Yet you have made him little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. My uh, daughter uh, started a book club recently. Uh, she was told politely she didn't live on the right side of Canterbury in Independence uh, to be in the one that's on the other side. And I said, what, are they stuck in the seventh grade? Uh, people are like that. They reject you for all kinds of reasons. One spring I was walking across Duke University's campus, and there was my old fraternity, the SAEs, misbehaving as usual. They were sitting out on their benches, and the women were walking by on their way to the, the commons, the dining hall, and the men were rating the women with one through ten signs. 
Nobody was getting a 10. One, zero, three. Now, how would you like to be a, a co-ed on a university and you had to walk that gauntlet to get your food each day? And what was going on with these SAEs was a superiority complex. We are the masters of this campus. We are the in crowd. We can rate you, but you don't rate us. And your equation is a three. You don't measure up. And a lot of people struggle with that sort of inferiority complex, or they're victimized by people who live like that. An actor on a talk show recently came out, and there was riotous applause. And after the applause died down, much of it, which was canned, I'm sure, he said, I know, I know, I feel the same way about myself, too. There are many people who walk through life like that. It's a world summed up in the self. But in the psalmist poem, he finds his balance of self-image between the two tensions. What am I? Yet you've crowned me with glory and honor. He mentions God 19 times in this poem, and himself about 9 or 10 times in this poem. And what the Bible is saying is that a healthy self-image is held in this tension. God, how majestic you are. Your creation is awesome. And I find my worth as a small yet important part of what you're doing in the world. God made me. He loves me. The cross is his paying the price for my sins. I am a temple of the Holy Spirit. He calls me his bride, and he breathes heavily after me. He's preparing a place for me, and he'll come again soon. In all of history, I'm the only one that gets to be me. And under God, and in the context of creation, I can love myself. So, somebody says, tell me about yourself. What are you going to do? Be shallow and say, well, I drive this type of car and my accolades are the following? Or are you going to tell people about the God who made you? And how awesome is his creation? And how you're a vital part of that in your small part of the world? I was coming out of a, a coffee bar in Chapel Hill recently. And a girl was coming in when I was coming out. And I had this sermon in mind and was working on it. This lady was very heavy. She had the worst case of acne I think I've ever seen. And she had been out in the sun. And she had burned herself almost purple in certain parts of her shoulders. And she looked like she was in pain. Her hair hadn't been washed. It had no feminine curl in it or anything. And our eyes met. And they just bonded there for a few brief seconds. And I could see the hurt of this woman's life. And I was always walking down the street back to my car. I asked Jesus, can a woman like that have a healthy self-esteem? Can she be happy in this desperate world? Or is she doomed to a life of self-loathing and unhappiness? And the Holy Spirit says, yes, she can be happy. And she can have a strong sense of self-worth. But not if she tries to get it from the radio and the television or by wishfully comparing herself to the girly magazines. She won't get it from the fraternity at Duke University, and she won't get it from looking in the mirror. But if she becomes impressed with who I am, and the marvelous of my creation, and sees herself as unique and one of a kind, she can be about as happy 
as anybody who's ever lived. Let us pray. Take each of us, Lord, by the hand and walk us before Yourself, Lord. Give revelation so that we can become overawed and say, Oh, Lord, oh, Yahweh, my Adonai, how majestic is Thy name in all the earth. And then cause us, Lord, to look at the intricacy of creation, the sea, the moon, the sun, the seasons, fresh fruit, a simple housefly, a peach, a baby, and cause us to see that you build and make wonderfully. But then take us, Lord, by the hand into your inner sanctuary and cause us to know that you have made me that you've made each of us like no other. We're not meant to sound like anyone else or to look like them, to have the same talents, to live with the same amount of money in our pockets. And cause us, Lord, to see ourselves in the context of your greatness and the greatness of your creation and see ourselves as a very real and significant but small part of what you're doing. Perhaps there's one of you here today that has never known the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe somehow some of the gospel has gotten past me to you, and where you sit, you would just simply say, Lord, I have been so lost, and I need your forgiveness. And I want you to come into my life and become my Savior, my guide. And as best I can, Lord, I invite your presence in my life, in the faith of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.